quite sort of quiet and mousy. Yeah, gentle, hidden frogs. Little squeaker. Okay. Is it a squirrel frog? A squirrel frog? What makes you say that? Yeah. Well, only because last time it was a sheep frog. It sounded a bit like a sheep. Oh, I don't the know chupacabra why. This frog, is, yeah. yeah. Yeah, this is reminding me of squirrels a little bit. Okay. I think it's a small frog and... Um, uh, what, yes. what are you saying small? How small? Small. We're talking tiny. Yeah. We're talking like one of the smallest frogs ever. Want to put a number on it? We're talking a... 15 millimetres. Oh. No, that's too small. 25 millimetres. Oh. <laughs> I don't know exactly how big this, this species is, but I know that the genus varies from 11 to 26 millimetres. Oh, it's... Oh, we had it that long ago. Oh, it's the, the pumpkin toadlet frogs. Oh, that would have been pumpkin adorable, but gang. it's not. Uh, it's not, I'm um, afraid. <laughs> you're not gonna, wait. You're not going to get it. But <laughs> okay, be, go on then. Put me out of my misery. Well... I don't have a common name for it, but it's Diasporus igneus. Ooh. And uh, they're in Central and South America. This one uh, pops up in Panama, I believe, which, nice connection to the paper we're going to chat about today. But they're also sometimes referred to as dink frogs because of the noise they make. That's cool. They're very pretty. They can see where they're called igneous. It looks like they've got a sort of red patch mm. on the flank towards the back leg, which looks quite sort of lavery. Yeah. They're cute little frogs, aren't they? With a cute little noise. <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed that. So is there anything in particular about their ecology that's interesting? Or are they just, what, they, what do they do? All I've really got is like lowlands, moist lowlands. And um, that's about it. I could not find... So anything meaningful or useful on this little frog. But I was so committed to finding a good sounding call from Panama that all other <laughs> all other considerations were cast aside. So it's from a mountain in Panama, is it? The Serenia de Tabasara. Right. Okay, there you go. I've got a little bit of ecology okay. here. What do you got? They've been found calling inside holes of trees filled with dry leaves in a branch two meters above the ground. One was found calling from a bromeliad, five and a half meters in a tree. Another one from a moss-covered bark. <laughs> a moss-covered bark? A moss-covered bark. <laughs> Where do you live? A moss-covered bark on a branch. Again, five meters off the ground. So yeah, they're arboreal. And uh, yeah, they usually sit up more than four meters above the ground. And even after searching for three hours, sometimes you can't find one, even when it's calling. Well, that makes sense because they are tiny and kind of sneaky looking. Yeah. And they eat wood lice sometimes. Delicious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Apparently, the species of Diasporus, all the species in the genus sound the same to humans. We can't really tell them different, tell them apart. Oh, so what I could have done is found information about one of the others that had more ecology about it and cast yeah. aside the igneous specific Panamanian uh, frog angle. I'm glad you didn't, though, because I've just found the etymology. And you know how I said it looks like lava, lava especially the patch on the yeah. side? Yeah, well, the species epithet igneous is the Latin word for fire. And is used here as a noun in apposition. It refers to the reticulated dorsum in contrast to the red coloration in the axilla and groin. So, yeah, that bit. That is evocative of fire. Excellent. Excellent. 
and it's got a reticulated pattern on top, which, as we now know, doesn't mean it looks like a reticulated python. Looks like a giraffe. It means it's, it's no, no, it's oh. like a net. Oh, a net. Yeah, that's what it means. Yeah, it looks like a giraffe also. <laughs> okay, great. Well, that was cool. I enjoyed that frog call. Shall we move on to our species? Our species, our paper, which is our paper, also about calling. It is. So this is Halfwork, Blast, Kramer, Hijner, Trillo, Bernal. There are more authors, but my referencing software has cut them off and we must give them credit where credit is due. Page, Goot, Ryan and Ellers. And this was published in Nature, Ecology and Evolution in 2019. And it's entitled Adaptive Changes in Sexual Signaling in Response to Urbanization. So... We're sticking with frogs and we're talking about urbanization. And sticking with Panama. And crucially, well done, Ben, kudos. We're sticking with Panama. That's very impressive. And one of the first lines of the paper, they talk about the Anthropocene here, which I like. They're not splitting any hairs. We're in the Anthropocene, according to the author. I of this think paper. anybody splitting hairs over that should probably look out the window a little bit harder than not at all. <laughs> scathing remark so yeah cities obviously the anthropocene we're living in a human dominated epoch and one of the ways in which the anthropocene expresses itself is in the differences between cities and for example forests cities are very different we have lots of buildings there is (laughs) remarkably different topography there's different niches there's different climate all of that yeah different materials Uh, and like you think about how water moves through a city compared to a forest it's completely different completely different impermeable surfaces poor everywhere imagine being a frog in that situation yeah with your super permeable skin it's gonna be rough So yeah, there's different niches, different threats, different advantages. Sometimes it has to be said for some animals who are wily. But one of the things which urbanization puts pressure on, which maybe you wouldn't necessarily think of straight away, is the vocalizations of animals. So sometimes animals in cities begin, because of evolution or adaptation, to change the way they vocalize to better suit the environment they found themselves in. Yeah. Number one, because it's noisy. It's super noisy, yeah, and there's lots of big, large structures in the way. And if you've right. ever tried to shout at someone from the other side of a skyscraper, you'll find that you can't. Well, I think it's not just, yeah, it's, it's noise and, like I said, with sort of impermeable surfaces, there's a different acoustic sort of um, environment there. Like sound bounces off a tree very differently to it bouncing off a, you know, concrete or brick wall, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And in this paper, they were talking specifically about one frog individually and that is the tungara frog yeah aka one species of frogs as as a frog as opposed to it as you made it sound like it was a single individual (laughs) we're talking about one frog his name's michael (laughs) tungara frog in the city yeah no it's called the tungara frog which is a physalamus pustulosus and it's a species in the family leptodactylidae which is really fun and yeah it's found from mexico throughout south throughout central america and into north and south america even into trinidad and tobago maybe even guyana it's in venezuela quite small sort of like 25 to 35 millimeters long and they're sort of um 
greeny brown with little darker bits. They're quite beautiful though. They've got a nice bit of sort of orange speckling in there mm -hmm. as well. And yeah, what do they do? They're like I said, there's neotropical species, and at night the males gather together in puddles and cool to attract females. That's how they're attracting females, and they sort of blow up their big pouch underneath and yeah hopefully make some nice noises pouch produces ripples on the water too that's another they use the ripples to amplify their communication and there's another paper that we we didn't pick but it's by the same authors or at least some overlap of authors where there are bats that uh echolocate the ripples more effectively and so you've got this weird trade-off situation where they can use the ripples to enhance their call but also that enhances the bat's ability to find them potentially this is a wonderful setting this frog and the studies that these guys have done you've got multiple different pressures on the frog call some of them good you know make your make your call more effective but it comes with a cost because the bats are going to find you sort of thing and it's there's a very interesting stage set for these frogs with their adaptability specifically surrounding their calling. And it wasn't just bats they had to look out for, was it? It was also midges. There was, for this one, yeah, midges come in and have a little frog snack. Yeah, they get nibbled on, which is really related to why I get nibbled on by midges too. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would imagine if I was to sort of sit in a puddle late at night singing, it would probably be even worse. <laughs> It would, <laughs> yeah, you'd feel them. That's for sure. Yeah. So yeah, there was a few sort of stages to this paper. First of all, they wanted to actually make sure and see whether or not there was a difference between the calls of urban frogs, so frogs in the city and frogs in the forest. So they had like eleven sites from the forest, eleven sites from the city, and they looked at the calls. They looked at their uh, waveforms, and they listened to them, and they determined that yes urban frogs have more complicated calls, there's extra elements which they add, which are attractive to females, presumably. And um, yeah, the urban frogs have an extra bit compared to the forest frogs, which, as you said, have more, potentially more predators and things to worry about, but they get onto that a bit later on in the paper. But should we listen to the two types of calls yeah, and hear absolutely. the difference? A paper that's providing the calls. Okay, they've got pictures, but they provide the audio files. It's glorious. So, should we listen to the forest call yeah. first? We'll bang it on a few times. Wow, it sounds very laser beamy. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a very sci-fi frog noise, for sure. Yeah, I feel like you could easily get away with that as sort of a free... It's a sort of thing, like free sound effects soundboard. It's like one of the original <laughs> ones, laser... <laughs> Not very exciting as frog calls go, but let's listen to the urban one and see if there's a difference. I mean, it's got that little, instead of just a, it's a, it's got a bit of flair at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, might not seem like a lot, but in the context of, uh, a frog call, which is obviously under a lot of pressure from evolution. That's quite a significant difference. And um, not only do they have a different call, these urban frogs, but they're also less bothered about humans approaching, which kind of tells you a little bit about their urban attitudes. Yeah, the, yeah, the forest ones would stop calling when humans approached. And they weren't calling as at such a high frequency too. 
So you've got this urban counterpart that seems to be braver, cooling more rapidly, and with that greater complexity. Hmm. So should we talk about their calls attracting the females, bats, and midges? Yes. <laughs> this is where it starts getting complicated. Right. So in, in urban sites, they attracted fewer females compared to forest sites. But it seemed to suggest that that was because there were was it there were fewer females around. There was a sort of greater male skew in urban areas. Weird, because what they so they attract also yeah. attracted fewer bats and fewer midges. So it right. wasn't like a predation pressure thing. So there are the calls of the males are more grandiose in the urban areas, but. They're also attracting less females, but also less bats and less midges. So could it just be that there are less frogs around and they're having to try harder to get mates? Yeah. And then there's not that cost because there's actually fewer bats and fewer midges in the in the urban areas as well. Or so it's just that like, there's something to do with the urban environment that is counteracting the bats and midges' effectiveness of locating the frogs. Like it could be a sort of interference thing as well as there are fewer of them. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I would imagine a cityscape would be more difficult for a bat to navigate. And I suppose the midges, you could have high densities of midges, but you'd need to have standing water, which I suppose most cities do yeah. it's in a wet area. You know, you usually find that particularly mosquitoes and things like that in tropical cities are pretty full on. But then also, you know, you've got other things getting in the way, other smells, other sort of, you know, things to get in the way of midges' ability to travel and find these frogs. So, mm. But the real interesting aspect so it sounds like okay urban ones are less effective at attracting females but they also tested female preference for the urban calls and the forest calls and it did seem like the females preferred the urban calling males as opposed to the forest males ah they have got a more attractive call right they've probably been forced to use yeah mm. so yeah they're having a hard time finding the females, so they've they've improved their call. And the females do find it more attractive, so they're doing their best. Yeah. It's just harder, probably, for the females to find them in an urban area. I guess the... Potentially, the or, it's, not or it's a, a male-female skew in the population, potentially, yeah. Male-female skew, I suppose, yeah. Oh, gosh. That's a weird one. There's all sorts of reasons. Well, there's a few reasons why you end up more males and females in a population. I mean, I hope it's not something to do with the uh, hormones in the water. Could be a temperature thing. I mean, it could be all sorts. I'm not sure. I don't remember them mentioning something that could be leading to that. They do maybe also bring up hormones affecting the sort of hereditary, you know, differences in in calls potentially. I guess as well, if the males are calling and attracting the females, maybe the responsibility is on the females to be more mobile and travel to the males, which could be more dangerous in a city if there's like cars and people. Yeah, yeah, potentially. And presumably there are other predators of these frogs beyond bats, like foxes, like fox-like things, well, mammals. rodents, yeah. I'm sure there are. Hmm, yeah. But I guess quite crucially, what's cool about this is that these frogs have found themselves in a human-dominated landscape. And rather than just sit down and use the call that they've always used in the forest, they've gone ahead and improved their call, responded in terms of adaptation to their new city environment. Well, when it does seem to be a plastic thing. They translocated some frogs and swapped up their environment. So they took some urban ones and put them in the forest and took some forest ones and put them in the urban environment. 
the urban males, when in the forest, decreased their call complexity. They started calling more like the forest males. But whereas... They knew the risks. Right. Potentially, because you've got this higher predation pressure in the forest, and maybe they don't need to overcome some of the interference of the urban environment, possibly. Or just a different acoustic environment. When you take the forest males and put them in the urban environment, they didn't change their call. So is it... It's sort of difficult to know exactly where that's coming from, but certainly the urban ones have this flexibility that the forest ones don't. That's really cool. Yeah. The city slicker frogs. The city slicker frogs have the sort of option to use the more advanced call, but if you yeah. take a frog out of the out of the country and put it in the city, it doesn't know the local song. It doesn't know how it works. But exactly what cue they're using to switch up the call is going to be sort of pretty tricky to uh, tricky to ID. There were definitely differences in sort of lighting and low frequency traffic noise. Because obviously, you know, they weren't in the forest, but they were in the urban areas. Yeah. Yeah, light levels, less canopy as well in the urban areas. So, Mm. yeah, unknown what cues there are, but it does seem to be something that the urban frogs are holding on to. So it's, yeah, yeah, that's it's fascinating. They're just sort of more adaptable. I think they were slightly smaller as well, but not by a huge amount. Mm. Well, I mean, yeah, so there's city slicker frogs. I wonder how many other animals are just sort of like subtly altering their behavior to live in cities successfully. There must be so many little things like this that go on. Yeah. Well, and they, and interact too. I'm sure there's a lot of literature about birds too on this subject. Yeah, because this isn't just the frogs modifying their calls. This is frogs modifying their calls and the sort of predator-prey implications of that too. Mm. So, uh, yeah, we've got the Tangara frog. Physalamus pustulosus, which are altering their calls to make them more effective in urban environments. Um, and yeah, it obviously takes a bit of time for them to gain that ability because the forest ones can't do it, but the urban ones can remember yeah. their forest calls from their evolutionary past, which is quite nice. It's quite a nice little tale of city slicker frogs adapting. It is, um, yeah. They do sort of draw attention to that they definitely have, it's not super surprising that the predation pressure is relieved in urban areas because it has been seen in you know lots of places where your larger predators are some of the first things to disappear from urban environments so it does all seem to tally up with other examples like we sort of sort of mentioned and their sort of increased bravery in the face of humans too Mm. so there we go urban frogs and have you got any other business ben i don't nope Okay, I've got a couple of pieces of business. So um, first of all, I don't know how much we've talked about it on the podcast, but here in the UK and across some other countries in certainly Western Europe, it's a big thing to release a lot of pheasants and shoot them. Like, yeah, it's a popular pastime among the wealthy elite. And you go out and you get yourself a big sack and you shoot like, I didn't realize how many it was, but it's like 40, 50 pheasants per person. And the way that they facilitate this hobby is every year in the UK alone, there's 50 million pheasants released, which is this Asian bird. And they raise them up in cages and then they let them go out to the countryside to roam free for a few months, fatten up. And then people come along and shoot them um, when the right time of year comes. And it's this huge, massive industry. And it's obviously quite controversial. And everyone... How big is the industry, though? How, many, how much money? Yeah. I have no idea, mate. I, that'd be an interesting one. I wonder how big it 
actually is in terms of portion of rural, you know, money movement. Yeah. Because is it actually that big or is that a way of inflating its importance? It says here, according to, oh, hmm, shootingfacts.co.uk. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, not it's probably not an easy one to answer just off the cuff. They're claiming that shooting is worth two billion to the UK economy. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Anyway, either way, fifty million birds getting released is a lot of birds. And if you've ever seen the map of the UK, if you're not from here, it's not a very big island. And so they very quickly become the most heavily represented bird by biomass in the UK and heavily represented in road vehicle collisions too pheasants yep yes that's a shame i mean yeah the pheasants didn't do anything themselves but yeah they also eat stuff right they're like you know they're miso predators they're large birds and they eat things and there's quite a lot of suggestion there has been a lot of suggestion a lot of controversy around the fact that they probably eat a bunch of reptiles and now for the first time a paper has come out about this the study was conducted in belgium and it's actually in French, the article. So I've only managed to read the summary, but the summary essentially says, yeah, like these, they studied the impacts of these massive releases of pheasants in Wallonia in Belgium. And their results suggested that lizards and snakes have disappeared from areas subject to massive pheasant releases. Mm -hmm. And they further demonstrate that the disappearance of pheasants from one site followed a few years later by the return of a lizard species. So not only are the pheasants extirpating reptiles locally but also if you take them away lizards seem to come back at least in one case and so they recommend that because of these impacts on biodiversity pheasant shoots should be prohibited yeah i agree i think it's really crazy and dumb it's a no-brainer i think it's especially insane that it's occurring at times with avian flu jumping around and causing problems too probably shouldn't be mass transporting birds about the place Especially when they've been held in close quarters during transport and stuff. Like, doesn't seem, doesn't seem wise. No. no, and it's so dumb. And honestly, the pheasants are everywhere. It's insane. Like, they're the most common bird. Even around here, there's not like, a, I mean, there must be some shoots around because we see them occasionally. But, I mean, they're nice birds. They're nice to look at. But, my God, like, they shouldn't be here. And um, they always make me jump when they're hiding in long grass. <laughs> they wait until the very last second and then they get up. Like, <laughs> it's just like my god giving me a heart attack it's horrible i hate it so yeah as it turns out pheasants yes they are bad yeah the other side will probably tell you a load of old nonsense about it not being true but it is a fact and um yeah nice evidence for that now just wanted to mention that because i know that like it's an issue which certainly among uk herpetologists is kind of gaining traction as something which should probably have something done about it if we don't want to lose our native reptile species. Oh, and it kind of seems like it's going that way. Yeah, it's tricky to... I think the reason why there hasn't been as much evidence for it is it's incredibly hard to monitor reptile population numbers in sufficient precision to see effects, basically. Because when you... <laughs> I mean, how many like adder populations and stuff can you get good population estimates on? Because it's a sort of, they're there, or you can't find them. When you do find them, you know, what are the recapture rates of adders and stuff? It's, it's Snakes are tricky to do that sort of study with a lot of the time. Yeah, and the populations will be small. Yeah. And also where there already are pheasants. I mean, they're, they're likely are already gone. So It's yeah. very difficult. Very difficult. But yeah, I just thought I'd bring that up. Um, good to see some actual evidence for 
what everyone was suspecting. And uh, yeah, other business otherwise, something a slightly happier note. It's about fish, Ben. I saw something really cool about fish and I just couldn't let it go. <laughs> this better be a monster fish. It's not a monster, but it's a cool fish. Okay. You know, the lungfish. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So lungfish are these like special fish which can breathe air as well as water. Breathing air has an, a lot of advantages. It's got more oxygen in it and uh, it means you can survive in water without much oxygen, which is obviously a benefit. And that's why the lungfish have evolved it. But this cool, cool, cool paper came out and it's by uh, Kaxmarek et al. And basically they were looking to see how lungfish evolved to be able to breathe air, whether or not like the sort of the formation of the bones and the sort of structures that allow them to do this. And obviously this is interesting because, you know, many millions of years ago, there was a fish that was starting to do this and then it it really gave it a good go and it decided to fully come out on land eventually. And that's why we exist. So that's why it's exciting. But basically they're suction feeders, um, lungfish. And so they have this like sort of anatomy which allows them to sort of suck in big areas or big like bits of water um to suck down prey and what they found is that actually um when they breathe air it's pretty much doing exactly the same thing it's remarkably similar the kinematics of air breathing and suction feeding it's all kind of suctiony and um it suggests that if there was a fish many millions of years ago which was suction feeding which likely there was it probably actually didn't have to make a big evolutionary jump to be able to then start breathing air it was it already had the bits and bobs ready yeah classic evolution sort of thing is path of least resistance and if you've got something that does half the job it's a lot easier to do yeah (laughs) borrow tools you already have sort of thing or readapt them yeah yeah readapt makes it sound very proactive even though it isn't but you know what i'm getting at it's easier yeah, for accidents yeah. to happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's very cool. And they use like the pectoral girdle and the cranial ribs. So they've got like these like little skull ribs. Skull ribs. That all just like push back. Yeah, it's pretty nuts. There's a really cool gif of it. But yeah, there's like these basically like they look like two little sets of paired ribs that both sort of yank down mm-hmm. and uh, breathe in air and also breathe in <laughs> sucking water. Like little bellows. Yeah, well, there we go. That's all I've got. So, um, yeah. Have you got any other business? No other business? Nope, no, nope. nothing else? I'm all set. Great. I think that just about s- ties off our episode on urban frogs then. So, uh, yeah, I think all that remains to be said is you can find us on social media, um, at highlights at gmail.com. If you want to get in touch with us, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram. And if you want to correct us on anything, please do. So, yeah, thank you for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening. Thank you.